just kind of bring you up to date where we are uh, if you've been away. I know summer's kind of a crazy time. Today's kind of a crazy time in the life of the church. I looked around and I'm going like, where's all the staff? <laughs> Ministry staff-wise, uh, I'm it today. Uh, uh, we're, uh, Dan left this morning, uh, Dan Baker, with uh, some chil- a children's group to go to Miracle Camp. They're on their way there now. Uh, Nate's on vacation, and Chris and the team is coming back from Guatemala today. So, uh, oh, okay, oh, that's somebody's child's there. Uh, <laughs> Anna's all right, I understand, so she's good, okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, they'll be back this afternoon sometime. So anyway, we're glad for that, what God's doing. But at the same time, let you know what's been going on. Last four weeks, we've been doing a series. Today's the last, uh, last week of a four-week series called You're Dead, Now What?, talking about the whole issue of death and dying and, and what happens after we die. What does the Bible say about it and how should we approach it uh, in a biblical uh, mindset? So we'll wrap that up today. But also let you know what's going to be going on uh, next week. Uh, next week's going to be kind of a report from our Guatemala and Kentucky mission teams to let you know what's going on, what God did. Uh, there's, there's going to be some videos and some testimonies and some teaching and a little bit of everything, uh, pictures and stuff from those two trips. Our junior high uh, and a group of people went to Kentucky uh, a few weeks ago and uh, ministered there, and now our Guatemala team's coming back today. And so that's what's going to be happening next week in our service time here. be a great time of celebrating what God's done, not only there, but what he did in the life of the kids that went. Because uh, I think sometimes, even though it's significant that uh, we do ministry there, really I think it changes hearts and minds of, of people that went, not only the students, but the, the leaders as well. So I encourage you along the way, if you've never been on a, a national or international mission trip, to consider that. Uh, you really need to. Uh, because I think it's, it's something that my goal is for every person here to have gone at least one in their life somewhere to serve uh, because it, it is a different different thing. And I think, don't think one's enough. I think you need to do it every few years just to give yourself uh, re-inoculation to reality about what happens in our world. So we be in prayer for that groups, all the groups that are heading in different ways. Uh, the other thing is, is in a couple of weeks, we'll be starting a series that will last all the rest of July and August, and I'm going to be looking at the book of Job. And for some of you who are familiar with the Bible, you're going like, oh man, it's a bummer book. You know, it's the uh, first two chapters, you know, it's about pain and suffering and all this kind of stuff, you know. Well, I, I, I read this a few, a couple of months ago. I went, read through the book of Job two or three times to prep, prepare for this. And, uh, and then I listened to some messages from other pastors and did some other things as well. And I got a new perspective on the book of Job. And so I want to encourage you to read the book of Job in preparation for the series. But this is how I want you to read it. I want you to read the last chapter first. Chapter 42 first, and read it because it concludes some stuff. And if you read it in that chapter first, and then go back and read the first, you'll have a whole different perspective on how everything goes, to, goes together in the book. That's how we're going to approach it. We're going to call it The, the Life of Job, A Story of Hope. And uh, that's starting uh, in two weeks, and I look forward to teaching that. Uh, really, a very, I think, a very positive thing, talking about how God wants to uh, bless our life. And, uh, and so we'll be looking at that as well. Now... This morning, we're talking about, we're wrapping up the series on uh, You're Dead, Now What? And today I want to talk about how to live with the end in mind. Uh, there's a book by an uh, author, his name is Ernest Becker, and he wrote the book, it's called the, the Denial of Death, and he says this, he says, we arrange our lives, we human beings, around ignoring or avoiding or suppressing the most irrefutable fact in the whole world, that is this, I'm going to die. Okay, I can guarantee you this series has touched everybody. Okay, there's some series, you know, I mean, did a series earlier on marriage, and some people say, well, you know, I'm not married, or 
And I'm not married yet. And well, if you're not married yet, that was the perfect time to learn about marriage before you get married. Uh, but, uh, you know, it may not have touched except, you know, 85% of the people here, okay? Uh, but I think it, it, you can learn principles from that as well. But this series is about everybody. Because I can guarantee you, without a doubt, that 100% of us, me included, are going to die. Okay? There's only two things in life that are irrefutable. What are those? Death and taxes. You've heard the same thing. And we're praying the taxes someday will go away too. No, I don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, death, is, death is something that's real. So he says, Ernest Becker in his book says, we just deny this in our culture. He, he says, we don't even want to use the word death a lot of times. He says, we have all kinds of other ways of saying it. We use the terms like, well, they passed on, or they've gone to the other side, or they've gone ahead of us, or, or then sometimes on TV they'll say, well, they kicked the bucket, or they bought the farm, or they're pushing up daisies, or swimming with the fishes. We use all these little terms, but not to say we don't want to use the word death, because death seems so final to us for some reason. So we do everything we can to avoid the subject. But what the Bible says, and this is what we've been talking about in this series, that what the Bible says we, must, we should be prepared for it because the Bible says that this life is short. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about this verse in James chapter 4 that says this. What is your life? Your life, uh, for, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I mean, we think that, you know, we, we think that you know, if you live to be 80 years old or 90 years old, that it's a long life. But in light of eternity, that's just a mist. It's like I, I you know, had a little spray can up here and, and I spread it. You know, it's just a spray and it's just a little mist that went out. That's your life. And I'm not saying that's bad. It's just we have to keep things in perspective. That's what the Bible is saying to us. It says or it's a mist and, it's, it's, and it appears for a second. And really, if all we do in life is just focus on the here and the now, we're missing out on one of the things the Bible talks about, and that is being prepared, living in light of eternity. And so whether you live to be, you know, 40 or 20 or 40 or 80 or 100, it's still a short period of time, uh, relatively short in comparison to your existence in, in all of eternity. And the Bible says we are to count our days, number our days. Uh, there's an interesting website I found uh, in doing some research. The website is called, it's kind of crazy, but it's called Death Clock. Death Clock. Don't all get after iPhones and start, you know, doing Death Clock stuff right now, okay? But I'll tell you, it's kind of crazy. And what it is, is this. It's kind of morbid, really. Because uh, what it does is if you go in there, the site, and you put in a few little information like your, you know, your birthday, your age, your, uh, a few things about your height, your weight, and you have to be honest, and your BMI. And if you don't know what that is, it'll, it'll figure it out for you. All those other things, it'll tell you uh, what your, your estimated day and time of death is. Okay? First time I did this a couple of weeks ago when I was preparing for this, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, enthralled to know that I was going to die on July 4th, 2050. Um, I'm going like, wow, man, I get to live a pretty long time, cause, and I'm not exactly, you know, spring chicken anymore. Uh, so that's pretty good, you know, 2050. The problem is I went back this morning, just, to, just for fun, to see what it was. I've lost seven years <laughs> in two weeks. Now it's 2043 in so, like May something, you know, and I'm going like, What? I haven't eaten that bad. I mean, that donut I ate the other day, I didn't, don't tell my wife, she's sitting back there. You know, it's not going to kill me, but the thing is, the thing is, is that, you know, the problem is there are no guarantees. This site is just, you know, it's just something, like just random number producer, I'm sure. But the Bible says, look, you need to be living with the end in mind. And so today I want to ask this question. This is the question. 
Am I living, and I want each one of us to ask the question of ourselves, am I living with the end in mind? What does it mean to live with the end in mind? If I look at my relationships and my commitments, if you look at your finances, at your calendar, your time, your energy, all these things, uh, is it, does it point to, to something where you're really living with the end in mind? Uh, is the point of your life now to prepare for the next? And to help us understand what that looks like, since it's not really a clear picture sometimes in most of our minds, I want us to look at one passage of Scripture today, 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you have your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, we'll be looking at a few verses today where Paul, in this passage, talks about, uses some words that uh, he writes that, that help us to understand what it means to live with the end in mind. Now, it's interesting in this passage, to know the background of it, that when Paul writes this in this passage in 2 Timothy, he, he doesn't have much time left on this earth. He does kind of been coming down to the end because he's, he's been imprisoned, he's had all kinds of issues, and, he's, and, he, and he doesn't have much time left on earth. According to the historian Eusebius, uh, Paul was beheaded under the reign of Emperor Nero. And so this is just, his death, his imminent death was just around the corner for Paul, and for some reason I guess he knows it's, it's soon. And so he writes this letter to second, this letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy. He writes to his son in the faith, Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, this is what he says to Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all to, the, to all those who long for his appearing. What I want to do is let, pull out some phrases out of here that talks about the attitude that we have when we live with the end in mind that, that Paul points out, and then talk about what it means for us. So the first phrase is this. He says, I've been poured out like a drink offering. I've been poured out like a drink offering. Now, that's the, probably the one phrase in this whole passage that means nothing to us in our culture because we have not grown up with the Old Testament sacrificial system. But in that day, one of the things that was done that they did is that they would go to the temple and they would offer actually sacrifices uh, as a way of honoring God, of, 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 of uh, worshiping God, of sacrifice. And there was different levels of sacrifices. A really, uh, really big sacrifice was to sacrifice a, a, a lamb. Uh, you might sacrifice a dove. There's different things. And the interesting thing about this is that the drink offering that Paul says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering, the drink offering in the sacrificial system was the least impressive of all the offerings. It was a, a simple chalice of wine that was poured upon the altar to symbolize their life as an offering to God. It was a very, very uh, humble thing. Almost anybody could do that. So Paul describes his life here as a drink offering. He says, He's humbly saying, look, I may not be that impressive. I've certainly made mistakes in my life, I am, but I am pouring out what I have, and I'm pouring it out on the altar to God. My life is that way. I'm giving it all to him. Whatever it is, I'm giving it over to him. The question for us out of this is this. In, in a sense, are we giving ourselves to God? Are we, all of us give ourselves to something. All of us have an altar. We may have a physical altar, but all of us pour our lives into something. And the question is, what altar am I pouring my life onto? What altar am I pouring my life onto? One of the things that I've discovered over the years, it's one of the roles of pastors, and this is true of all pastors, is we do funeral services, okay? 
And one of the things I found over the years that I discovered early on in ministry, a long, long time ago, is that often I'm called upon to do a funeral service for someone whom I don't know. I mean, I've, I cannot tell you how many times I, I, I've been called by a family member and say, hey, can you do a fa- funeral service for this person or this person? And I've done probably 300-plus funeral services over, over the years. And probably 50% of those people I did not know. Or I know very little about them. And so the one thing I want to do when I do a funeral service is I want it to be, you know, when I know someone, I can make it personal. I don't want it just to be this kind of recited type of thing. And most pastors are that way. They want to do this and make it personal. Uh, share things about the person's life. So how do you do that when you don't know somebody? It's really simple. I call the family. I say, can I go and meet with you? Can you tell me a little bit about your loved one? And so almost every time it happens, it happens this way. I'll go to a funeral home. And I'll sit down in the room, in a conference room in a funeral home, around the table, and it'll be three or four or five at the most, family members, and I simply will look at them and ask them the question, tell me some things about your loved one. Let me get to know them a little bit better. And you think that would be easy, right? But I cannot tell you how many times when I ask that question that there's this awkward silence. And they look at me and they're like, I said, what are, and, and I'll try to prompt, what, what were they passionate about? What did they love? How do they spend their life? I wrote down some of the things that I've heard over the years after this awkward silence. One of the things one person says after this, this, this guy said about his dad, he says, well, come to think about it, he was a huge sports fan, huge sports fan. Never missed a Cubs Cubs broadcast on TV. Never. Okay, yeah, tell me a little bit more. He knew every player on the Cubs, Cubs you know, team. And they went through this whole, the whole conversation was about the Chicago Cubs. Or another person, another person said, you know, he loved to play golf. He just loved to play golf. He, he played golf three times a week. He just loved to play golf. He had his buddies that he played golf with every week, three times a week. Okay, tell me, he, he actually didn't play very well, but he loved to play. Or I had one person say, well, my mom, she loved romance novels. Oh my gosh, she loved romance novels. She had a stack of romance novels next to her bed, and she would read them, and then she got finished reading them, and she'd read them again. Yeah, okay, anything else? And I'll never forget this one. This was, this was the, the strangest one, I thought. One put, person one time I looked at, and, and, and they couldn't think of anything. And they were sitting there stumbling. And I said, there's anything that you're really passionate about? I know what it is. My mom loved the young and the restless. Matter of fact, matter of fact, she liked them so much that she knew every character. I mean, I'll never tell you. I don't think it was her that put it on the prayer list, but one time I had a person on a prayer list at church in Virginia. One here, of course. You guys are much more spiritual. Uh, but the thing is, is, I was on a prayer list, and it was this person's name, and I didn't have a clue who that was, and somebody came in the office and said, that's a person on the young and the restless. And I called the person, and I had a secretary call the person, and he said, yeah, they're going through a tough time. I mean, it's so funny, it's, it's, it's sad. It is. But this thing, I mean, but I've had those conversations. Here, here you're sitting in a room, and you're asking, what did a person do with their life? 
And all we can talk about, I'm not, I want to scream sometimes. I just want to yell sometimes. And, and you've lived your entire life and we're talking about soap operas and baseball teams and playing golf or basketball. I mean, really? That's the only thing that a person, you can think about a person's life? And when I hear that, you know, I, I, I was convicted many, many times to go back home and sit down and think, you know, if I was, if somebody, if some pastor was sitting in the room and, and they had my family around and friends around and they were asking that question, what would they say about me? I hope it'd be more than that. And that's a really convicting. It really is. What, have you, what do you pour your life out on? What altar do you pour your life out on? I just want you to do something for a moment. I want you to close your eyes. This is an exercise. And I want you to think that this is, this is a scenario. It's not morbid. Okay, this is reality. And I want you to think, if you were sit, if somebody was, you're not in a room, by the way, okay? If I was in a room and I was with your family and you had died, and I asked the family the question, tell me about whatever your name is, so I need to know them better. Think about who would be in the room and what they would say about you. Who would be in the room and what would they say about you? Okay, I just got you started. That's your homework this week. I want you to spend some time really thinking about that. Because the, if you're truthful with yourself and you're honest, hopefully it'd be some good stuff. You know, they did this. Because I've had a lot of good conversations in rooms with people. But most of the time I knew them. But the thing is, is, is that would say everything about what do we pour our life onto what altar am i pouring my life onto all of us are pouring our lives onto some altar what is it you know the image of a drink offering in a sense in a sense too uh when they poured upon the altar the altar was hot where it'd been burning you know the the offerings up it would pour on there and it would this mist would rise up and it'd be this sweet smell and it was a, a symbol of this sweet odor going to god of them pouring themselves out to him and that's that's what it meant and this image of an offering of a life being lifted up to God as a sacrifice. That's the first thing. My life is being poured out as a drink offering. The second thing he says is this. He said, the time has come for my departure. The time has come for my departure. The interesting thing about the word departure here that's used, it doesn't mean what you think it does. It doesn't mean the end. In Greek, what it literally means is the time has come for me to set sail. He's not saying, you know... The time has come for me to draw a line under it. No, or put a period at the end of the sentence to kick the buck to buy the horse. No, he's saying the time has come for me to set sail. It's his way of seeing the end, not as the end, death not as an end, but as a new beginning. That's how Paul approached it. He says, it's time for me to set sail into the rest of eternity. That's what he's talking about. So what you pick up on as you read about Paul as he talks about death, he wasn't dreading death. He was anticipating death. He was. And it's other places it talks about it as well. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 24, it says this, for, me to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I, am going to, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? If I had my choice, Paul says, what would I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is, far, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. 
And he says that word there when he says desire to depart. Once again, it's the same word, to set sail. And that's what he's saying here. He said, look, if, if it were up to me, I'd go ahead and be with Jesus because I know that that's going to be better. But he says, God has placed me here for a purpose, and while I'm here, I'm going to pour my life out as an offering upon the altar of God and let him use it in some way to serve him. And so he's not anxious about death. He sees it as just a, a doorway, as is, is a setting sail, a new part of, of eternity. And so Paul, Paul talks about it that way. So I think this. I think that living with the end in mind, just in these two things, means that we are having a deeper desire for our heavenly home. It's increasing in our life. We, it's not like we're, you know, I'm not talking about suicidal, okay? I'm talking about us desiring to, to be with God. It's something we anticipate with eagerness. That someday this is going to be the way it is, a deeper desire for our time with God. But instead, what happens in our life? Do we usually think of it that way? No, we, get it. We, we don't think of it too much because we get so busy with the now. With all the stuff that's happening now. With, with just everything that's going on. I mean, you've got your job, your responsibilities, your extracurricular activities, and you just get so consumed with now. But Paul says we need to focus on what's ahead. It'll change the mindset of, uh, about how we deal with the now. It's kind of like this. I mean... Uh, uh, most of you, if you've not been already, you're going on vacation this summer, right? Somewhere. And around here, a lot of people go up to the Wisconsin Dales. I understand. I've been there one time. Okay? 11 years. It's a cool place. That's up there in the winter. I like to go up in the summer sometime. I understand it's a totally different world in the summer. Um, it's, it's warm, for one thing. And, uh, but uh, I went up there. But anyway, decide you're going to go to the Wisconsin Dales and you've never been there before. So you don't know anything about the accommodations there. There's tons of accommodations. And you're kind of an outdoorsy person, so you said, I'm going to get a cabin. But I want a cabin that's nice, you know? And so you get out, and I, I made the mistake in the first service of saying brochures, but we don't use those in the world today. You go to the website. And you go to the websites and you look over all this stuff and you find this, this bunch of pictures and this information about this cabin up in the Dales. And it looks great. It looks like it's perfect. And so you rent the cabin and you go up to the Dells. But when you get there, you notice that the pictures they took of that, that's on the website must be at least 20 years out of date. Because the carpet is torn, the countertops look like the 70s, the cabinets aren't too good. It doesn't look, I mean, you know, it's not really what you thought it was going to be. But you're, you're, you're focusing on the now. And so what you do is you said, you know, this place could be much nicer. And so you, you said, you know, I'm a handyman. I'm going to live for now. And so what you do is you start, you say, I'm going to fix this cabin because I'm going to be here for at least a week. And you start working on the cabin. And you tear the floors out and you put new floors and you put new countertop, granite countertops in there. I mean, you buy a new pillow top mattress you put in there. You do all the stuff. You spend all your resources, all your money, all your stuff focusing on to get that cabin fixed up. And at the end of the week, you're just worn out from that. But where you're going, wow, that was great. Look at this place. It's great. And then the next morning, you get a, the phone wakes you up, and it's the rental agent. And they say, I just remind you, today is your checkout time's at 10 o'clock. See, that's the way a lot of us live life. We just focus on what's right in front of us, and, and we don't think about long term. We don't think about the future. It's just about now. And all our energy and all our time is focused on now. And that's how we end up spending our lives. We get all of our time, all of our attention to the mist. To what's happening right now. And in comparison to eternity in heaven, our entire life here on this earth is like a couple days in a cabin. 
It might be good to have a nice cabin. But really, it doesn't really matter in eternity. So how do you live your life? How do you, what do you focus on? The third, uh, another thing that Paul says, he says is this. He says, I fought the good fight. He's talking about his life here on earth. I fought the good fight. The word fight here is an interesting word. It, 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 sometimes when we translate from English to Greek, or Greek to English, we don't get the whole, the whole um, um, gist of the word. Basically, the word here, the, the word is translated uh, fight, means an agonizing struggle. An agonizing struggle. He says, I have fought the good fight. I've been through this agonizing struggle. In the midst of this, as Paul says, you know, he's also the same God that says, he also says, uh, uh, joyful, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But he realizes in this life that we have this agonizing struggle that we go through sometimes. And he says in the midst of the, of the now, of the agonizing struggle, he said, he said I, I have fought through this. I have stayed true to what's going on. Uh, and this is not a guy who's had light afflictions in his life. If you know the life of Paul, you know that he went through, he had shipwrecks, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was stoned. I'm not talking about reefers, okay? I'm talking about throwing rocks at him, you know, the whole thing. You know, that's the way they used to stone people. And, and, and all these things, you know, all these things that were going on in his life. He had all this stuff going on in his life. But here's the same God that says, he says this in 2 Corinthians 4 16 this is what he says about life he says this therefore we do not lose heart though outwardly we are wasting away yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day then he says this for our this is the same god that was shipwrecked imprisoned stoned um you know all these beaten all these different things he says for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all how can he say that if he focused on the now, he would not be saying that. But because he has the living with the end in mind, he can say, you know, these, these, these troubles that I'm going through, as tough as they are, they're light and momentary in light of eternity, in light of this amount of time versus the little myths that I live in right here. And then he says this, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since that would, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, Paul is basically saying to us, our eternal reward outweighs our light and momentary troubles. And that's the perspective of heaven. We have this perspective of living with the end in mind to understand that no matter what hardships or challenges or experience in life, that one day in heaven, it'll, just be, it'll seem like that. It'll, it'll seem so small in comparison. But he's saying, I know, understand it. While we're going through this stuff, it's tough. And I struggled through this. It's, it's a struggle. But he says, keep in perspective, um, if we live in the end of mind, what, what's in store for us? I love what a philosopher, Peter Kreft, says. He says, in light of heaven, he says this. He says, to fear, in light of heaven, to fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Lest maybe just a scratch on a penny. He's saying, look, in light of heaven, the thing is this. If heaven is your home, and if, you're, if that's truly what you believe, then freaking out about the challenges and the troubles and the stressing out and living life without joy here on this earth, it's like a millionaire worried about a penny. That's the comparison, he says, when we think about the bigger picture. So how do you approach life? Well, it's it's kind of like the two guys that were hired to uh, hold up uh, uh, boards for, for businesses. You know, now it's become kind of a thing. You go around, you see people outside of businesses, tax places, pizza places, all kind of places, you know, with signs. And they're out there and they're holding up signs, you know, come and eat my pizza or 
get, you know, tax services or whatever. And, and, and so we just have these two guys. This is a made-up story, not true. But uh, it makes the point. Um, and they had two guys. One guy goes in first, and he's hired. And the guy says, okay, I want to hire you for a year. And you'll work 40 hours a week for a year. At the end of the year, I will, in one lump sum, I will pay you $10,000. Now, it seems like a lot. He's smart because he makes like a lot. But if you break it down over a year, 40, uh, 40 hours a week, $10,000 is not a lot of money. Not even minimum wage. And so, you know, he's going, okay, I'll do that. I'll have another job, so I'll do that. And then, uh, then another guy comes in, and he, uh, he interviews for the job. And the guy says, I'll tell you what. I tell you what, I said, I want you to work 40 hours a week for one year. At the end of the year, I'm going to give you a lump sum. I'm going to pay you $10 million. Obviously, that's a made-up story. But uh, do you think if you watch those two guys outside holding up signs, do you think you could see a difference? I guarantee you could. Because they know what's coming down the road. They have the end in mind. One has, oh, it's good. okay, I'm going to get paid $10,000, so I'll hold my sign up here. I'm going to be too excited, you know. The other guy's probably over dancing, you know, $10 million, you know, and he's jumping around, you know, he's probably twirling his sign, he's doing all the stuff, you know. He's just having a big old time because he's thinking about what he has the end in mind. So as Christians, if our hope is in heaven... We have this great promise. Do we really believe it? Do we really? If we really believe it, I'm saying that it changes how you hold your sign. It impacts the joy and the spirit that you have as you go through the challenges of life. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I don't ignore the fact that we don't have challenges. I had them. But I'm living with the end in mind and it changes how I live life day to day in a real sense. And he uses another phrase. He said this, I have finished the race. I finished the race. It's been hard, he says. It's been difficult. But I can see the finish line quickly approaching. And then he gives the example of two persons kind of at the end of this little passage that we haven't looked at so far. In verse 9, he talks about a person named Demas. And he says this, he says, I want to draw your attention to him because he's kind of an example, Paul says, of a person who started well but faded out. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Demas became so focused on the now that he lost sight of the end. He was so focused on the immediate, on the present, because he loved this world, that he's gotten pulled off track. And we see three places in Scripture, real quickly, where Demas is mentioned. The first one is in Philemon. In Philemon, it says, we're introduced to Demas. It says he's introduced as a fellow worker of Paul. Good standing. The next time Demas is mentioned is in Colossians 4. And Paul says, Demas sends his greetings. Once again, good standing. Somebody that's helpful. But then we see in 2 Timothy here in this passage in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, we see Paul saying, Demas loved this world, and what's he done? He's deserted me. He's not, he's not focused on the end anymore. So he begins to race strong, but then he fades out. He's gotten distracted along the way. And I believe that's so many people's story. That somewhere along the way, we get all excited about God. I know people that start off strong in Christ, and they still really focus, and they have joy in their lives and all those things, but then they let the burdens of life overwhelm them. And then what happens is they lose their joy. Oh, we can lose our joy short-term, yeah, but we can't long-term. Long-term, God wants us to 
refocus on the end. So he begins the race strong, but fades out and gets distracted. There's another person he mentions, though. In verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, he says, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. He's not like Demas. Demas used to be helpful, now he's no longer helpful. But then we have to understand the story here, the history behind this, because we know that Mark was Barnabas's, which was Paul's first missionary journey partner. Mark was Barnabas's uh, cousin. And Paul, on his first missionary journey, when he began this mission work, if you read back in Scripture, Mark was one of Paul's companions. But when the trip got the hardest on an early missionary journey, what happened was, we don't know exactly what happened, but when the trip got the hardest, Mark bailed. He left. He went home to Mama. We don't know that. I'm just saying that. But he left. We don't know why, but Paul felt deserted by Mark. He says it very clearly in Scripture. But now, later on in Scripture, we see Mark, in the end of his days, when he wanted somebody to depend upon, who does he call beside Luke? He says, give me Mark. See, maybe, maybe you haven't started off that well. But the good news is, it's not how you start. It's where you are now in the future. Maybe as you work your way around that room when thinking about all the people that are Maybe this week, if you really take this seriously and you want to sit down and think about the people that will be talking about you in that room and saying stuff and, you're, and you don't like what you hear or what you think you would hear, it's not too late to change that. It's not too late to refocus. It's not too late to live with the end in mind. Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. And he says this, he kind of wraps up this first part of the passage. He says, now there is in store for me the crown of life, the crown of righteousness in some translations. And so we see him anticipating his reward in heaven. We talked about that last week. Now, the whole question that this series comes down to is this. The whole question. You know, we talked about, we've got information, we've talked about heaven, we've talked about hell, we've talked about some things the Bible says about these things. And I hope those are good. I hope they've been helpful. But it really doesn't matter how much more information you have. I had a lot of people say, yeah, that was the first time I really learned about that. And I'm going, that's great. That's really good. I'm glad. The question is not, did you learn more, but do you believe it? Do you believe it? I mean, do you really believe this stuff? Do you really believe that life is short? Do you really believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Do you, do you believe what the Bible says about these things? I was reading about a, a, a social researcher that was doing some studies, and he, and he says this. He was talking about one of the many problems in America today, and he said this. This is a social researcher. This is not a Christian. He said, you know, one of the greatest challenges of America right now is what is called incongruent values. Incongruent values. And he need to define what that means. He said an incongruent value is when we say we, say we believe one thing, and we really do passionately believe it in our head. It's a heartfelt belief, but our life completely contradicts it. He said it's become an epidemic in America, incongruent values. People saying, oh, this is really important to me, but then their life con- constantly contradicts. And he was talking to a group of marketers and, re- and, uh, and advertisers, and he's talking about the challenge they had because people will say, for instance, things like this, health matters to me. Health matters to me. They'll say that. People, almost everybody will say, health matters to me. And so advertisers will spend billions of dollars because of what people say they believe. But their life doesn't reflect it. So how do you deal with that? He says, they'll say, health matters to me. So you ask questions like, yeah, if health matters to me, 
well, do you eat right? No. Do you ever exercise? No. Do you get enough sleep? No. But I'll tell you, nothing matters more to me than my health. Incongruent value. I could name hundreds of them. And so when we look at this whole issue of heaven and hell, I believe these things to be, we can say I believe these things to be true about heaven and hell and what the Bible says concerning the eternal life and the shortness of life, we can say we believe those things, but the struggle is to align our life with those beliefs. And, our, and the world is constantly pulling us in a different direction. It says live for today. It doesn't get any better than this. But I'll tell you it does. At least according to what Scripture says. And so I ask you this, do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? If you really believe this, the things that we've been talking about, then let me ask you, are you living intentionally? And this is what it means to live intentionally. Are you serving other people or are you living for yourself? Are you giving sacrificially and storing up for yourself treasure in heaven? That's what the Bible says to do. If you really believe this, then have you forgiven the person who doesn't deserve it or are you living with bitterness and anger in your heart? Are those things that you do? Because that's not the way to live. You will never live with the end in mind when you do those things. Okay, let me just ask specifically, do you believe in hell? Do you really believe it? If you believe in hell, then I have to just ask this question. I have to ask myself this question. Am I praying for friends and family who don't know Jesus? Is that my primary prayer? Because, folks, we can help people with physical needs and all kind of stuff, and that's good. We're called to do that. But if that's all we do when we don't pray for people's greatest need, which is to get right with God, then we've missed the boat. We aren't living with the end in mind. So how can I believe in hell and, and, and say I love people and not be praying for them or reaching out to them with the love of Christ? How can I be, not be giving generously so that other people can know the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ? I loved it a couple of weeks ago uh, when Heather Argo shared, uh, did, the giving, uh, did our announcements and giving talk, and she, shared, she just got back from Kentucky. And she was sharing about how, she was talking about how as we give to the life of the church, what it does is, this is one of the ways it does, and how excited she was about seeing that helping people in other places. And I've shared with our leadership, and we talked about this, that as we free up our debt over the next less than seven years from now, free up thousands of dollars a month that we're paying on this mortgage debt here, the thing is, is we're not going to spend it more on ourselves. Our goal is not so we can build more bigger buildings and stuff like that. Our goal is to serve more people because that is what God has called us to do, to meet needs here and across the world and to tell people about Jesus Christ because we, if we say we believe in hell, we must make that a priority. We must make that a priority in our lives. Do you believe in heaven? If you believe in heaven then can I just ask you this? Does your life, uh, is it marked with hope and joy and peace? Because if we really believe in heaven and we're living with the end in mind, we realize that this is just temporary. And yeah, we go through struggles. And we'll have our ups and our downs. But isn't our life generally marked with joy and peace? Because that's what it means to live with in mind. That's what it means to believe in heaven. Really believe. 
If you really believe in heaven, do you hold your sign differently? Which guy are you, the $10,000 guy or the $10 million guy? Do you live life in a way that's just, just, you think differently? People see it in how you handle your struggles and your challenges. Or do you just look like the rest of the world? See, if you really believe this, you'll live differently. It affects not only your future, it affects the now. So, ask yourself this question. Am I living with the end in mind? Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning for this opportunity once again of sharing your word. I thank you for the words of Apostle Paul who uh, so straightforwardly shares these things and, and shares what it means to live that way. A person who understood pain and suffering and issues and, and difficulties in life, but at the same time clearly understood what it means to live with the end in mind, to, live the, to understand that what it means to say, I believe in this and to live it out. And, and I don't see incongruent values in his life. God, help us to be that way. God, we could, it's easy to say I believe in something. It's a different thing to say I believe in it and then act upon it. And people will know, people will know, Yes, people will know when we say one thing if we really are living it out because they can look at us, God. And it affects our witness. It affects how we live. It affects all those things. So we don't have to be fake. Just, just, just trust in you, God, and give you the focus of our life and pour our life. May we all pour our lives out as a drink offering to you, God. May we honor you with our life in such a way that we would never forget what you've done for us and what you have in store for us in all of eternity. Guide us now this day, God, as we this week hopefully explore ourselves and ask ourselves some tough questions. And may God, no matter where, what we come out of, we can know, God, that from this day forward, we can change if we don't like the answers. We can change and become a person who lives with the end in mind. And by doing so, God, we'll live life in a different way than we've ever lived before. Thank you, God, for your, your mercy, your love. Your grace. Be with our kids as they're traveling back today from Guatemala, the ones that are traveling to camp, all the different ones that are going to different locations. We pray, God, that you would have helped them, to, uh, our kids that went to Guatemala, that it may have affected them in such a way that they'll live with the end in mind and understand uh, the need to share their faith with others, not only here locally, but across the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.